So God often uses things of this world to teach us. For example, he talks about the birds flying in the sky and how God takes care of them. They don't have to sow. They, don't, they just get what they need from God. He talks about it in the sower and the seed. He describes God planting the word in our hearts to a farmer planting seed in the ground. And so this morning's Bible study is going to be very different than what I usually uh, preach because it's going to be an analogy that God gave to me to help us get a deeper insight into God's heart. And so many times we've heard cliches. We've heard things about God, like if I told you God loves you. Everybody here would agree with that. If I said God is always thinking about you, you would agree with that. But our hearts, our human hearts, need to know what does that mean? What does that mean to us? What effect does that have on our life when we really let that truth come and overwhelm our hearts with God's love? So God gave me a picture. This actually, the sermon started in my heart a month ago. So I almost fell out of my chair when I listened to Greg's sermon last week because the two just mesh right together, and you'll see that as I go on. So the thing that God chose to help me with this sermon is a baseball pitcher. Now, I would never, ever, ever think about a baseball pitcher in reference to God. But as God unraveled this to me, I thought, oh my gosh, and my relationship with God had just began to open up. I began to see things that I knew were already true, but they didn't have the same profound effect until God showed me this. It's kind of like if you go to take a shower, the water is as wet as it can be, right? You turn on, but if you have a raincoat on, you're not going to get the full benefit. Well, God uses analogies so we can get the full benefit of who he is, that our hearts are opened up so we can receive the fullness of his love and life for us. So I'm going to describe a baseball pitcher and the phases that he goes through as he pitches. Now, for those of you that do not like baseball, I apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> but trust me, this is going to be worth listening to. For those of you that are really into baseball and you are great baseball fans, I have to apologize to you also. I did not dig in for baseball terms. So I'm going to just be talking as a person that is a, a fan of baseball, but I haven't gotten in and studied all the legal terms. So there are several different phases that a baseball player goes through before he pitches that exact pitch that he wants to pitch. He knows how fast he wants it to go, how slow he wants it to go. Does he want to throw a curve or a straight ball? Does he want it to go high or does he want it to go low? Each phase is important until he releases that ball and it heads towards the batter. First, there is the stance. The pitcher walks onto the mound he shakes off any distractions, nerves. 
he loosens his shoulders. He gets set up to begin his windup. His mind is filled with his desired pitch. That's all he thinks about. And how is he going to deliver it? He places his feet in just the right way on that mound. His piercing stare takes in the batter, the batter's box, and where he sees that ball going in his mind. Focused. Extremely focused. Not thinking about anything else but what he wants to do. He focuses on that pitch. He gets ready to prepare his body, his mind and his heart to be fully engaged in its delivery. God was captured in his heart by us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He saw us holy and without blame before him. He saw us as his children and his mind has been filled with spending eternity with us in glorified human flesh. <clears throat> he thinks about you all the time. Psalms 139 says, <clears throat> his thoughts of you are more in number than the sand. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that God thinks about you <clears throat> more than the number of grains of sand there are in the earth? I mean, what does that really mean? That's one of those nice things that we know is true, but we can wear a raincoat so that we don't get the full benefit of what that is really saying. How much sand, how many grains of sand do you think I'm pouring? Thousands thousands in this little bitty bucket. Now think about how much God is thinking of you all the time. He is obsessed with you. He adores you. Just like that pitcher is able to focus and shut out everything but that pitch that he's getting ready to throw. God's heart has been overcome and overwhelmed with you and who you are. His heart is always filled with thoughts about you. When we can get a really good hold of that, our lives change. We'll never be the same when we realize how often God is thinking about us. God thinks about you all the time. All the time. Do you know that nobody else that has ever existed or will ever exist thinks about you all the time? Mm. He is the only one. God is captivated by you. He knows when you sit down and he knows when you stand up. He understands all your thoughts. We don't understand our own thoughts half the time, but he always does. He is acquainted with all your ways. The Bible says that before you speak a word, he already knows what you're going to say. There is no place that you can go that he's not there with you.
He is consumed with you. He is fixated on you. Sometimes it's hard for us to get our head around that. It's easy to accept that thought in a general way, but when we make it personal and we begin thinking about this is who God is to me, when I wake up in the morning, God's thinking about me. When I go to bed at night, God's thinking about me. While I am sleeping, God is thinking about me. <clears throat> when we begin to realize that, it can take our breath away. And we can begin feel, uh, feeling and being overcome with awe as we realize what God means to us. God spends his time thinking about you. Now, I want you to see the determination. I want you to see the fixation that a pitcher has when they're getting ready to throw a pitch. Isn't it amazing? Is he looking around anywhere? <laughs> no, his stare is focused. He's got the one thing in his heart. It fills all of his being. It fills its, his eyes. It fills his heart. It fills his desire. It fills his passion. That's how God feels about you. You fill his heart. He is full of passion for you. He is focused on you. And you know what? Just like that pitcher wants to deliver just the perfect pitch, God wants to deliver to you that perfect thing that he knows you need now. So many times we're not even aware of that. We don't know what's going on. We don't even, we're not conscious that God is right with us. When our kids were little, I tried to um, do things to help them understand that God was with us all the time. And so at our kitchen table, we always had an extra empty chair. And that was God's chair because we just wanted the kids to realize, hey, God's here. When we're eating, God's right here with us. So just as that pitcher shuts everything but pitching that ball out, so God's heart is filled with his love for you. Once the pitcher leaves the mound, his thoughts will drift to other things. God's thoughts never drift off of you. Never. They are constant. Then there is the grip on the baseball. Depending on the pitch that is chosen, the pitcher moves his fingers. I think it's actually this one again. Yeah. The pitcher puts his fingers in just the right place to pitch the pitch that he wants to pitch. Now that pitcher's hand and the ball almost become one. The pitcher doesn't look at the ball and look down and watch what he's doing with his fingers and where he's placing them. He knows. He knows that baseball. He knows where his fingers have to go. It's like the ball and his fingers become one. It's like a pitcher moves his fingers as an artist does on a canvas and paints a picture. Just the right placement 
just the right squeeze. His heart knows where to put the fingers. It's as if his hand and ball have become one, just like God's heart and our heart have become one. God knows every part of your being. He knit you together when you were in your mother's womb. His eyes saw before you were fully formed. And he knew all the days of your life even then because they were already written in his heart. His heart was already for us. God was present when you were conceived. He was there at the moment of your beginning. You weren't a surprise to him. You were planned by him, known by him always. Not a moment of your existence is hidden from him. He's always a full participant in your life for all your days. Now the baseball pitcher is aware of the other players on the field. He's aware of the other team. He knows his opponent. He's already studied their tactics, their statistics, their strengths and their weaknesses before he ever meets up with them. He knows what base, what bases the runners are on. He knows what their batting stance is so he can deliver that ball the way he wants to. God knows our enemy. He knew the plans that the enemy had and he knew the solution. He knew exactly what was needed to free us from the grip of death and it was himself. He came to conquer sin and death for us in himself because he loves us so much. He promised to eradicate death for us, even the memory of it. Only God had the solution, nobody else, and it was himself. Then there's the wind-up for the pitch. The pitcher uses his whole body to muster up all the strength and power it can before the release. He uses his legs, he uses his arms, he uses his shoulders, he uses his core. He uses everything to put all the power that he wants into that pitch. His body actually contorts before it releases that pitch. It can almost look very strange. <laughs> what they do with their bodies. Here you're going to see the stretch that happens. Depending on the, the way the pitcher pitches, that stretch can become much greater or shorter, depending on the type of pitch he wants to let go of. God prepared a body for Jesus, a body that would house all our sin and death inside of itself. God himself came in a human body as one of us, a body that would pour out everything it had so you could be saved, a body that would be stretched out for that final release on the cross. He didn't hold anything back. He gave his all. He did not lift one finger to save himself. 
He was all about delivering death, a death blow, so we could have eternal life. Then there's the release or the follow-through. The pitcher extends his pitching arm as far as possible, letting the ball go exactly in the direction and position that is desired. Let's see if I have. I have so many. <laughs> Here's one just as the release is, is about to happen. His gaze and concentration is cemented on the end result. As he lets go of that ball, he sees what is going to happen before it happens. He's taken into account the batter, what his stats are, what kind of pitches he likes, and which ones he has trouble with. He's also taken into account the umpire. And how is the umpire calling the balls and strikes? And then we look at Jesus. After stretching his body out on the cross and pouring out his blood to the max, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He rested in the Father's life to save him. His goal of that perfect pitch is fully realized in immortality and glory in a human body. God sees the victory in Jesus raised from the dead, but he also at the same time sees you in immortal flesh raised in glory. He sees death conquered. He sees his enemy crushed under his feet. He sees mankind free from the grip of Satan, and he calls, strike three, you're he fully defeats Satan in all his works, conquers death for you and me so that we will be resurrected and live forever in a body that has immortal life. The motion of a pitch is an amazing process when we can see it in slow motion. I've tried to put it in slow motion somewhat for you all this morning, but usually we don't get to see that. We're just watching the end result, aren't we? What, what's, where's the ball going and how does the batter respond? And that's what we think about. In the same way, we often don't realize all the workings of God in our hearts. We tend to look at the final end result, don't we? We don't realize that God has been spending night and day, night and day, night and day, working on healing our hearts of this one thing. And we don't even know what that thing is. But God's focus, because he loves us so much, is on that one thing that he knows is hurting us and causing wounds in our heart. And that's what he's going after. We also aren't aware of the constant gaze of adoration that God has towards us. We aren't aware of all the things that he's doing for us. I mean, think about it. We live and move and have our being in him. We aren't aware of his intense desire for a relationship with us and the lengths that he will go to get it. 
we aren't aware of his intense desire to father us, to be our God. However, if we look back at the last 10 years of sermons, we can get a little bit of a clue because that's the goal that God has had with all the sermons, with all the words that he's speaking to us, is that he wants to be our father. He wants us to be his people. He wants a family, but he doesn't want us to just accept it by blind faith. He wants to prove to us that he's a good father. And he knows those places in our hearts where we believe lies and we've been tricked and we aren't sure of how good of a father he is. And those are the places that he's going for to heal our hearts. I haven't mentioned the diets, the lifestyle, lifestyle choices, the workouts, the stretching, the warming up, the traveling away from home, the hotel rooms that baseball pitchers endure. I haven't mentioned all those things, but those things are a part of what that baseball pitcher has to go through to pitch that pitch. The injuries, the patience while healing takes place. It really is a work of art. It takes years of patience and effort and commitment. It takes giving all you've got for those that excel in the sport. It takes heart, a heart that has a love for the game, a heart that's willing to sacrifice, sacrifice big to be able to pitch that ball. It takes a heart that is all in. Good baseball players love to play the game. They give up their social lives, their nightlife, they give up life as they know it to pour themselves into the game that they love because it's captured their hearts. They give up the food and drink that they love to get in the best condition they can. What about Jesus? And remember, he is God. Jesus spent eons in heaven with God and the Holy Spirit, enjoying the fullness of God's love for him experiencing the full glory of eternity and immortality. He created this world. He has no limitations. And then he became so captured by his love for us, by our beauty and value, and by the pain that we were experiencing at the hands of sin and death, that he gave up all of that he gave up that life he had in heaven. He gave up his residency with God and the Holy Spirit. And he took on a human form. He gave up his godly power. He had to learn to walk and talk and discover who he was. He had created the earth, and now he had to be carried by his parents. He experienced the same sin and death in the world that we did as a human. He was subject to the earthly elements, hunger, heat, and fatigue. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, the death on the cross. 
he gave up everything he had to get you. To get you. And then there are all the times that the coach benches the pitcher. Maybe he's benched because of his injuries. It takes a lot of time to heal sometimes. The time waiting to be strong enough to play again. Or he might be benched because the coach prefers somebody else, somebody else's coaching style. So the pitcher sits and he waits in patience, sometimes for years, waiting for himself to prove to the coach, the team, and the fans what he can do. I watched my grandson sit the bench for three years in high school because the coach didn't like his pitching form. He went to all the practices, did all the weightlifting, prepped the field before the home games, and cleaned up the field after. He traveled with the team, just waiting and waiting to be given an opportunity to pitch that ball. God waits for years if he has to. He waits to capture our hearts. He is so patient, and he isn't filled with aggravation like maybe some of the pitchers get. God has no aggravation in waiting. We are well worth the wait to him. His love is fixed on us every second, chasing after us, eager to show us just how much he loves and cares for us, wanting to father our lives. He wants to prove himself to us, to prove his love and his constant companionship, his ability to be our God. We're worth the wait to God. You are worth the wait. It might seem strange that I'm talking about baseball pitchers. Some of us aren't even interested in the sport, and most of us have never even looked at or noticed or closely looked at what baseball pitchers do. So why would I take the time to share these facts with you? That is exactly why. We've watched these men they have sacrificed everything to receive the goal in their hearts. And we're not all that interested for the most part. As we take time to look closer at the process, our hearts become captured with the sacrifice, with the love that they have for this game. It's the same way with God because we haven't realized the sacrifices fully that he's made because we haven't taken a close, close look at what he does for us every day. It kind of escapes our minds and hearts. I mean, how many times did you think about God this morning? How many times did he think about you? <laughs> and that's not to put guilt on us. We're free to be who we are and God loves us just exactly the way we are. But I want to bring out how God constantly is thinking about us. And sometimes we don't realize it or we have trouble believing it until we look at something in this world. That's why God gave me the baseball pitcher. God is constantly serving you with his love and affection. 
his adoration. Because we're pressed in by the carnal world, it's easy for us to get our eyes off of that truth. We can actually believe that God isn't doing anything for us when we're pressed in by this world. When tribulations come and slap us in the face, when it feels like we lack something and it doesn't seem like God is doing anything to meet our desire or our demand in some cases, we can think he's not doing anything. We can think one mustn't be important to him when actually he is focused on us 100%. He knows what we need when we don't. He knows exactly what time to give us what we need when we don't. And he knows what needs to be healed in our heart before we can even receive it from him, and we don't. Just like we weren't aware of all a pitcher goes through, we're not aware of all the things that God encounters and what he does to help us. Just as we're unaware of the blood, sweat, and tears that baseball pitchers go through, it's the very same thing with God. It's very easy to question his intents towards us when we don't realize all he's doing for us. We believe lies about him, and it makes it hard for us to trust him. It's easy for us to make assumptions when things go wrong. When we begin to understand the length and depth and height and breadth of God's love for us, we will begin to have our attention captured, and we will begin to see him wooing us to himself. I didn't like baseball much when I was younger, my dad was a die-hard Yankees fan. So even as a little girl, I saw the games on TV because that's what my dad was watching. And I would watch him pace up and down, very animated by his emotion, emotions, depending on whether the Yankees were winning or losing. I heard the stories about Mickey Mantle every Sunday. But you know, I just couldn't get into it very much. It actually was boring to me. But now, I really enjoy baseball. I'm especially interested in the position of pitchers. Do you know why? I have two grandsons that are pitchers. It has captured my heart as I see the things they go through, as I watch the struggles, as I watch the sitting and waiting, as I watch injuries, as I watch their heart so captivated, God has shown me that's how he is about me. He is filled up with love for me and for you. It's an amazing thing. One of my grandsons will be going into junior high and the other is in college. Because of them, I got interested in baseball. In the same way, I didn't used to like God much either. In fact, I hated him. In my estimation, in my estimation, <laughs> I didn't think, <laughs> excuse me, I didn't think he did much for people, especially not for me. He was the guy upstairs that didn't save me from the abuse when I was a child. 
when in my mind he had the power to stop it. I was so wrong. He had always adored me. He was captivated by who I was, but I was tricked and didn't realize how much he loved me. Another aspect of this baseball pitcher God analogy <clears throat> is the price that the pitcher pays to even get into the game. Obstacles stand in the way to try to stop that pitch and delivery long before it happens. For my oldest grandson, it came in the form of an injury while outside playing baseball with his grandpa when he was 10. It was only a plastic bat and a wiffle ball. But he watched his grandpa get hit in the eye with that ball and lose sight in his eye. He went to sleep every night for months crying. He felt guilty. He felt like it was his fault when it wasn't. And he swore he would never play baseball again. A few years later, God had healed his heart and he began to play again. But you know, God was busy healing his heart the day it happened. God was working on that. He saw the wound. The bigger wound was the guilt, not not being able to play baseball. But that wound needed to be healed in his heart before he was free. My younger grandson has been hampered by injuries. He's had an Achilles tendon issue for a while, and now he's resting and waiting, healing from a shoulder injury. What does that mean for the pitcher? Ice, physical therapy, stretches, more ice, rest, waiting. Pitchers hate that word wait. But that's part of the game, working through the obstacles and the pain. What about Jesus? Were there obstacles for him? From the beginning, the circumstances surrounding Jesus' conception were questionable. Joseph had planned to divorce Mary quietly, but God intervened. Herod wanted to kill Jesus when he was a small child, but God intervened. Jesus was rejected by members of his own family. The church declared him a heretic. He was mocked and persecuted throughout his ministry. But God was there with him every step of the way, providing Jesus with the life that was from the Father so that Jesus was able to withstand the attacks, but not in his own strength, but in the strength from God. <coughs> it's so important to know God's heart towards you, to know the depth of his love and his intense passion for you. He is always for you. He hates death and its effects on your life more than you do. He is there before you, his life pouring out to nullify death's effects before it even comes to you. He's trying to be our God and Father so his life can swallow up the death that tries to come against us. It reminds me of the story of Uzzah and the ark. It's easy for our hearts 
to judge God as unjust when we read that story? How could Uzzah die when he was just trying to steady the ark so it wouldn't fall on the ground? But you know, God had already made a provision so that that couldn't happen. He saw death would try to attack if that ark fell on the ground. And so he had them carry the ark in a certain way to prevent the death from ever coming. But you know how people can be. We always think we have a better idea and it should be done in a different way. And so they decided there was a better way to carry the ark upon the works of their own hands upon the works made with their own strength instead of letting God's protection free them from death. As Greg would say, that's only the introduction. <laughs> but until we get filled up with um, all the intensity and the love that God has for us, and the constancy of his passion for us, we can miss what the thing that he's trying to say. So, does anybody know what that is? I know mamas have seen it lots of times. Let me jog your memory for a second. A baby has been inside their mama's womb for nine months, warm, cradled, when they do that with their hand, there's a nice warm wall right there. When they do that with their hand, there's a nice warm wall right here. So they're fully contained. They feel safe and they feel protected. And then all of a sudden, they're in this bright room. They don't know what's going on. It isn't warm anymore. And there are no walls holding them in. So when those little babies put their arms out, there's nothing there. They're startled. And you can watch their little hands shake. They're trying to find that protection that they had inside the womb. Babies are very sensitive to changes. We don't realize it sometimes because they can't talk to us. And they can't tell us, can they? So we don't know. Guess who does know? God knows. He knows every thought, every fear, every feeling that that little baby has, even though it can't express to others. So why am I talking about babies now? Because I've had a very unusual experience in the last year. God saw that I needed a healing from something that happened to me when I was a year old. Something that I don't have a conscious memory of it happening. And yet, my response when that thing happened put a wound in my heart and caused my heart to put up a wall to God as my God and my Father. And all this time, even though I could have never said that to anybody, God knew. I'm 69. 
He waited 68 years, wooing my heart, pulling me towards him, persuading my heart so I could trust him enough that I would let him take me back and change the choice that I had made. So I'm going to share that experience with you all. So as a one-year-old baby, my parents gave me to my grandparents for three years. My parents, my grandparents and parents lived about three hours away from each other. So I didn't know my grandparents at all. And even though I don't have a conscious memory of all of this, I was left by my parents in a strange house with strangers, strange smells, strange noises, and a strange crib. But even though I didn't have a conscious memory of it, it's had a profoundly negative impact on my heart and my relationship with God. My heart had held on to that fear from that day when I was one years old, even though I didn't remember it. But God remembered everything about it. He remembered the pain and the fear I experienced. That memory was in his heart because he feels everything I feel. He knew the wound needed to be healed, even though I didn't even know I needed it. So eight months ago, God showed me a picture of me as a little baby in this crib, crying hysterically, filled with fear and anger, not able to be consoled. When I relived that fear, it was so bad that I felt like my insides were going to be on the outside because my little body, heart, mind, emotions couldn't handle the feelings that I was having. And then in this picture that God showed me, and remember, this is an analogy. God's just trying to show me what's going on in my heart. Jesus, who is God, crawled into the crib with me. I was still hysterical. And he said to me, let me be your home. I want to be your home. I want to be your God. I want to be your father. God was applying for the job of being my God and my father. He wanted to serve me with his life. What was he saying to me? I didn't have a clue the things I was getting ready to experience, but he knew it all. He knew the abuse that was coming. He wanted to be my home so that I would not be tricked into believing lies about him through all that. God wanted me to know that he was there for me and he could take care of me no matter what happened. But I didn't want him for my home. I said, no. I wanted my home in Metairie. I wanted my home back with my parents. I wanted my own house. I wanted my own crib. I wanted my parents. Did you notice everything that I wanted was carnal? Because that's the only thing 
that I could understand at that time. Do you understand what God was giving me? God was trying to give me himself so that I could be in peace even if I didn't have all the carnal working the way I wanted it to. God was offering me his life that was going to protect my heart and mind from the death that was going to try to swallow me up. And you know, it's easy for us to think um, in our carnal minds that the worst part of all that abuse was the physical and the emotional part. But I tell you, that's not true. The worst part of the abuse was thinking that God was the source of it because that's what they told me. That is what God was trying to protect me from in that crib. He didn't want me to believe that horrible lie that they were going to tell me. The next terrible thing that happened in the abuse is I was taught that God didn't like these people nor love them. And so he would not take care of them. That's what it looked like to me. And so I began to take on the responsibility. I thought I had to protect those people. I had to be the savior. I had to try to fix everything that was wrong. That was the worst part of the abuse. And whether I realized it or not, what had happened was I had lifted my heart above God's because I believed I was better than God. And I loved people more than God. Do you know that has a horrible effect in a person's heart and how their ability to trust in him is affected? Those beliefs stayed with me much longer than when I was in the abuse. They've tried to ruin my life. They've tried to keep me from God. They've tried to keep me on the treadmill of doing and protecting my own life and everyone else's also. I didn't trust God. I couldn't trust others. So that left me. I had to take care of myself and trust myself. God had sent himself as my savior in that crib. But I had rejected his fathering as that little baby. I rejected his job application. I didn't understand the life that he was offering to me. Remember, God was with you when you were conceived. He knows everything about us. He knows what we really need. And he was there to father me, to be my God. He's there for all of us, even as tiny babies. So God has been applying for the job of being your God and father since you were conceived. Wrap your mind around that. Now, God is not a God that falls apart when he's rejected. He's not lacking in self-esteem. He's not self-seeking or touchy. He doesn't get fretful. And he doesn't take account of the wrongs done to him. He isn't even concerned about his own heart. He's only concerned about us and how we feel. And God was used to rejection. Adam and Eve had rejected him. The Israelites had rejected him. The Pharisees had rejected him. Judas had rejected him. 
and I had rejected him for many years. In fact, without God persuading our hearts, we're unable to fully trust him. Not only does he want to be your God and your father, but he takes on the task of proving to you that he's fully capable and worthy of being your God and father. God was not offended at me because I benched him. He was still with me wherever I went. He saved my life several times when I was growing up. He was so vitally involved in my life, but I wasn't aware of it. It took many years before I could receive God's love, and he waited patiently, just like that benched pitcher waits and waits and waits because their passion in his heart was so great for me, just like that pitcher's passion is so great to throw that ball. God's response to my no in that crib was love and patience and continuing to lay his life down for me. He knew that the rejection of him in my heart had caused a deep wound in me. He wasn't concerned about being rejected. He was concerned about the damage that it had done in my heart. He knew, even though I didn't, that that wound was still hurting me until a month ago. It had not been completely healed. God was constantly working in my life, even though I had no idea that I needed this healing. It was easy for me to miss all his attention, to get busy with the things in the world, and we get busy traveling on the road of self-life, trying to provide what we think we need. God wants us to know how much he loves us. He wants us to experience his love in a way that is so deep that we can't even begin to imagine it. Can you, can your brain imagine being filled with the breath breadth and length and height and depth of God's love? No. The Amplified Bible talks about us coming to know this love through experience, that we would feel it. And it's an experience that far surpasses mere knowledge. And that we would be filled with the richest measure of his divine presence and become a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. Wow. Wow. Beyond what we could ever think or imagine. Ephesians 3.20 goes on to say that it's God's power that is working in us to carry out his purpose of us experiencing this deep expression of his love in our hearts. It isn't even our work. It's God's work. He wants to do it. He enjoys doing it. It goes on to say that he's going to do it super abundantly, far above and, ab and over anything that we could think or ask, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, hopes, or dreams. This is God Almighty. 
he has a crush on you. Let's just realize that. He has a crush on you. He's so full of love for you and his purpose to fill you up with his love is until you feel like you're going to pop. He wants to prove his ability to meet your needs and to take care of you. He has applied for the job and wants to prove to you that he's fully capable of being your God beyond anything you could think or imagine. So God, being God, was the only one that remembered what had happened in that crib. Right? Nobody else knew. I had forgotten. Everybody else had forgotten except the one that wants to be my God. The one that says, let me father you. He saw that deep wound that still was not healed. He desired to fill that place in my heart with the length and depth and height and breadth of his love for me. He waited patiently for years to heal this place in my heart. Not because it took him a long time, but it took me a long time to be able to get to the place where I could receive it. What was long forgotten by me was in the forefront of his heart. He waited and he waited. He didn't judge my foolish rejection of him. He was grieving because of the pain it had caused me. He was carrying me, but I didn't even know it. So back to my story of the crib. A month ago, God showed me that picture again of that little baby in the crib. This time I knew exactly what was going on and why I was in that crib and what I was feeling. Jesus crawled back into that crib again. He applied for the job again. He said, I want to be your home. Let me be your home. I want to be your God. I want to be your father. And I said, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> because my heart had been healed enough that I could accept what he was offering me. I wasn't afraid anymore. I didn't feel like I needed to take care of myself. I knew that I could trust God fully. The second I jumped into his lap in that crib, something fell off of my heart that words can't even really express. Something that I did not know was there, but God knew it was there. And that's all that's important. We're not to be our own gods. We can't father our own lives. Only God knows us inside and out. Only God is fully capable of being our God and our Father. Now you've experienced this too. I think everybody probably in this room, and I want to remind you of it. Remember when you didn't know why Jesus died on the cross? Remember when you believed 
that the reason Jesus died on the cross was because God was punishing him for your sin? Remember how it felt that you were taught that because he punished the perfect son, he wouldn't punish you? And most of us, I think probably all of us, because it was taught to us in the church and in, from leadership, we believed it. But that dealt a wound in our hearts that we were not aware of until we heard the truth. When the truth came and we realized that God and Jesus were never pit against each other, God never was mad at Jesus. He never punished anybody. Peace began to fill our hearts. We began to be able to trust God. Oh, he doesn't punish anybody. Oh, my goodness, what healing. We can begin to open our hearts up to this God and this Father that's here for us. Nobody thinks about you all the time but God. Nobody else remembers every second of your life. Nobody else knows the pain in your heart. Nobody else can give you eternal life. <coughs> Nobody else is qualified for the job of God and your Father. He's here to carry you when you have no strength. He's here offering you what he loves to do, and that's to serve you. And this isn't a temporary job application. God's not applying to serve you from 9 to 5. He doesn't want off on the weekends and holidays. This is a constant all the time, even when you're sleeping, job application. He's serious. He wants to be your God. He wants to be your Father. And He knows every place in your heart that makes it difficult for you to trust Him. He knows each one. He's going after each one. And He's saying, I'm your God and I'm your Father and I am fully capable of doing this. You can rest in me. You can let me do the work that's going to cause you to trust me more and more and more. Father, we just thank you so much that you have applied for this job, that your deepest desire and passion in your heart is to be our God and our Father. We thank you that you are fully capable and qualified but for those places in our hearts, we're not, we're not positive of that. You're going to come and you're going to prove yourself to us. You're going to persuade our hearts just like you did with me. You're going to come to those places that have caused us to mistrust you so that we can open our hearts to you. We thank you that you first opened your hearts fully to us. You became vulnerable to us. You were willing to experience rejection over and over and over, and you waited patiently until our hearts were persuaded. 
We thank you that your passion and desire is to be our God and our Father. Amen.